Computer, load Constitution Class Hollow Console, mid 23rd century. Translate command inputs to the Protostar's helm. Go get our friends out of that cage. Impulse power. Aye, aye, Captain. Pulse power. Transfer complete. Welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge, this is Tyler Orton returning to my own hive mind. (laughs) And we're here this week to talk about the latest two episodes of Star Trek Prodigy, Let Sleeping Borgs Lie and All the World's a Stage. And later on, we'll have, of course, the Cam Dort uh, installment covering the latest chapter of Andor, One Way Out. But let's start with Prodigy, a show we've been very enthusiastic about so far. We've had the return. We covered it a couple weeks ago. Tyler, the latest two episodes. Let's start with Let Sleeping Borgs Lie. Did this one in particular wow you? Well, I, look, you get the introduction of the Borg once again. I guess we saw them uh, in Picard Season 1. Uh <laughs> I'm just wondering if this is like the, the best introduction to the Borg for kids, like new audiences, you know, there, there's two different things going on here. Cause like, yeah. And I don't know, like, is this episode, uh, let's sleeping Borgs lie. Is it too tense for 10 year olds or is it just the right amount of attention to show kids how scary the Borg can be? Or is it just, does it make the Borg seem a little goofier than they really should be? Uh, I, like, I don't know, because the Borg have been just kind of neutered yeah. over the last <laughs> 20, 30 years at this point. So I just, I don't know what to make of this introduction of the Borg. I, well, you know, I, 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 I can tell what I think. I, I don't know if this is the strongest introduction of the Borg for these new audiences. As for as a uh, like kind of reintroduction of the Borg in the Delta Quadrant, it kind of left me a little bit meh. You know, there's no talk of any of those uh, trans-warp conduits, uh, you know, failing as we saw in Voyager's Endgame. It just seemed kind of like a, a cube hanging around. So, uh, yeah, um, the episode itself was fine. It was fine. I'm, like, I'm not mad at it. I just don't know if this was uh, a spectacular way to bring the Borg to life. Uh, but what, Cam, what about you? Well, I mean... The Borg were built up as such a threat over the Unimatrix Zero two-parter mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, I really feel like we've dropped the ball on the, where the Borg were going since then. I mean, <laughs> they were in such a great place. <laughs> the Borg are such a weird case where, like, we had them come back on Picard. And everything that's cool about the Borg is entirely tied to mystery and this, like, looming threat, which existed Decades ago, when they were introduced in Season 2 of TNG. And it has slowly dissipated over the years. And hey, you know, Star Trek First Contact is great. So I don't even know if there's like a cool way to reintroduce the Borg anymore. And I think this episode did probably the best thing it could, which was introduce them as this kind of unknown force. Because if you are like 10 years old, this probably is your first encounter with the Borg. Um... 
show them in kind of their iconic representation kids are used to. You know, some of this episode kind of wore on me as someone who's watched a lot of Star Trek because it was kind of explaining things that, I mean, I've known for decades, but at the same time, as a way to kind of explain the function of them to kids, it worked. But, like, I don't know. Like, I'm kind of with you where it's like, is this the best way to show them? As a kid of the 80s, I mean, I was raised on a lot of dark entertainment. You know, they would show kids things like the Dark Crystal, and it's like, I don't know, it's kids' entertainment. Um, the, the never-ending story. Garbage like, Pail Kids? or <laughs> Garbage Pail Kids, one of the all-time classics of the 80s, yeah. yeah. So it's like, dark <laughs> things were the norm, but, and I think they were smart to make it maybe a little more fun and lighthearted this episode. So I guess I don't know. I, I guess it's up to the kid. I think some kids will think they're very cool. Okay, I, I just, I wonder if there was more kind of a uh, a weirder sort of adventure like what if the crew found like an errant board a board <laughs> that's just how i felt about this episode uh, <laughs> uh, an, an errant borg you know uh, along the lines of hugh and yeah. so the threat level wasn't necessarily there and if kids discover them again through you know watching uh, first contact with their parents or you know going straight from TNG onwards with Q-Who, um, maybe that could have been kind of a surprise for them. You know, kind of building up this threat versus just like, this just kind of seemed like an exposition dump geared towards kids. And I can't really fault the series for doing that because this is meant to be an introduction to the Star Trek universe. And I think maybe the next episode that we'll be talking about, maybe that was a much funner way of doing so. So I'll say this. Aesthetically, I mean, I was I was very impressed with uh, what they were doing in the in terms of the depiction of the cube, the Borg drones. You know, like it was that sort of stuff that I I think worked well. But I kept like for me as a kid, I did not like super tense things. Like that had to kind of grow on me as I got older, and so I, I could feel this episode being perhaps polarizing for a lot of the intended audience here. So Mac and Me was, like, very stressful for you to watch back in the day, is what you're saying. I did not know if the kid was going to survive uh, his wheelchair uh, brakes failing and, and going off the cliff. I, I had to learn through Paul Rudd on uh, Conan O'Brien. That, that's what it really took. <laughs> yeah, like, I think where this one succeeded was the exposition dumps not so much, but I think just showing them through action, like the scene, you know, the battle scene on the bridge where they're, you know, rotating their phasers and then trying different things because the board keep adapting to the weapons. I think that's like a really smart, exciting showcase for what the board can do. You are not on a kid show going to make them as scary as they can be when you go back to like some of their finest hours and like best of both worlds or Q Who. Oh, that's Dark that's Frontier. Dark Frontier. Yeah, that's really too tense for kids. The Borg or something that's like... <laughs> I want the kid's introduction to be Dark Frontier. <laughs> the Borg are the sort of thing where it's like, I understand why they want to market them to kids because I think there is definitely a subsect of kids who are really into like kind of like the scary characters, the ones that are really visually cool looking. So, I mean, I was a kid who was really into villains. So things like Darth Vader, Skeletor, I just thought they were the greatest. And I probably would have thought the Borg designs were really cool. But at the same time, you kind of have to file down the edges of the Borg because, like, well, you notice in this episode when they're talking about they'll assimilate us, but they don't really go into depth about what that really means. And even when they capture our heroes, they're just, like, tied up, <laughs> which is not traditionally the case with the Borg. Well, it made me think of that episode of Simpsons with Hank Scorpio and you have the James <laughs> Bond figure 
who's about to get his crotch lasered off and yeah you know it almost kind of felt like that scene to a certain degree yeah like there's no like quick nanoprobe injections which is a typical borg move i mean what is the reason for tying them up don't you feel bad like there are those crew members on the enterprise e at the beginning of uh uh first contact where they immediately got assimilated but all these like twerps you know like ages 10 and under they were able to escape the uh the borg assimilation techniques because they're tied up to like uh these these boards i was just like okay okay you know i i mean i get i i, I totally get it from like a, a storytelling narrative perspective but it, it kind of once again kind of neuters the borg to a certain degree while putting them in this very intense situation you know and so that's, that's kind of why i just i i just don't know if this episode particularly succeeded at what it was trying like setting out to do and, and that's generally how i judge an episode is what are they setting out to do and how well do they accomplish that yeah because i would say they're trying to set up the borg as something kids might be interested in for future stories but i don't know that this will really open the door for that sort of thing it felt just kind of like a one-off adventure in that way um i i like your idea of introducing a character maybe like a hugh like character someone maybe who escaped the borg who could provide those exposition dumps more through character and kind of taking the you know the characters on the show through what they're going through i think that might have been maybe a little more compelling i do like the idea of having zero being assimilated but it turned into that thing and i don't know of a way out of it where zero overcomes assimilation essentially through the power of friendship which ah uh... well cam that's how you and i overcame assimilation <laughs> it's true <laughs> and we did a pink we locked pinkies and looked each other straight in the eye which it's a it's a great message for kids i suppose um i guess i don't know what the lesson is i like i like how you had to add i suppose as someone who's not a parent i always have to just assume these these sorts of stories for kids work because i have no way of knowing yeah did any of these kinds of stories work on you as a kid no when I go back I and know, think about exactly. the things I enjoyed, it was things that were like dynamic storytelling that really sucked me in. Um, I don't recall as a kid watching a lot of things and being like, I'm really glad I learned that lesson. <laughs> like, what did you learn from watching Full House? Um, that like overly affectionate families make me nauseous. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm thinking about maybe that the uh, caffeine pill episode of, you know, Saved by the Bell, you know. Sure. Where it's, I learned that um, I, I, I shouldn't study as hard as Jesse Spano does. I don't know. Yeah, well, there were all those special episodes which we would have grown up with. And I remember the first one I think I saw was Cartoon All-Stars to the Rescue, where it was like all your favorite cartoon characters team up to educate you on the dangers of drugs <laughs> and it was like oh that's not what i thought this would be and so yeah i guess there was like those kinds of specials but it came to like you know emotional journeys of like children and things like that i don't really know that i gleaned as much from them as i did more so as an adult going back and examining some of these really well written stories that i would have watched as a kid i think then i picked up a lot more but to me it was a lot of it was like visuals and just really, you know, propulsive, fun storytelling that would draw me in as a kid. 
Okay, okay. So, listeners, a little bit of behind-the-scenes action here. Um, Cam, I know for a fact in the last uh, week or so, you've started rewatching X-Men, uh, yeah. the 1990s cartoon. Um, how is that kind of stacking up? You know, it's been like 30 years almost uh, since you last watched it. Uh, just in terms of storytelling, like strong uh, storytelling uh, that is, is meant to appeal to kids, but not be just like goofy stuff. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think X-Men actually is a show that's very good to hold up against Prodigy because I think both of them have a lot of the same strengths where they introduce their characters incredibly effectively and give you a really strong sense of their personalities right out of the gate. They are also juggling pretty complex mythology to communicate to kids. You know, with X-Men, it was decades upon decades of comic book lore that they're trying to communicate and also a large group of characters. Prodigy also has a large group of characters and the Star Trek universe... Um, Try to explain that to a newbie. It's very, very dense. And I think that, like, both X-Men and Prodigy do that very well. In many ways, like, I think Prodigy is... Maybe there's a reason that we are enjoying it more than a lot of the live-action stuff. And it is because, even though it is speaking primarily to a child audience, it's doing it through very clean, effective storytelling. And it makes shows like this, or X-Men, or Batman the Animated Series, some of the really good children's programming really hold up no matter what age you are. Well, I'll say one of the consistent threads through all of this is uh, it's not pretentious. Nope. Like, these are not pretentious stories. Whereas, you watch Picard, you watch Discovery. Oh, man, <laughs> they, these are important shows, Cam. You you are a terrible person if you don't understand how important those shows are. I'm just like, okay. But, like, the thing that I love about Star Trek, though, is you watch any episode, even an episode, you know, like, I, I think the go-to episode that everybody points to is maybe Best of Both Worlds. Is you know, like, this is Star Trek at its prime. Not necessarily, you know, I, you know my favorite, but uh, I think it's very strong. It's not a pretentious story, though. It's very straightforward. It's Riker dealing with career decisions, and it explodes in a climax that you are so invested in emotionally because everything that's come before, you know. And um, I want to get to it when we get to the uh, the uh, Camdor <laughs> discussion, but the emotional beats they feel earned, they feel valid. Whereas I watch a lot of the Discovery, the Picard stuff, and it's like. <laughs> How on earth do you think like this pretentious storytelling deserves these like uh, the swelling music that you're giving at these moments that just don't feel earned? Whereas I'm watching like Prodigy, I'm just like, okay, the emotional stuff that we're going through here. I'll give you an example here. We have Hollow Janeway like just talking to Gwendola, like saying like, just please trust me, like put down your weapon, stand down, walk through this cadre of Borg drones. They're not going to attack you. She had to put her faith in a computer program but a p computer program that has like led her well in the last like 10 or 11 episodes you know and so it's it's that sort of stuff that feels earned like those are the emotional moments that speak to me much more than watching you know burnham coach you know uh washington through like a ufc match that they're clearly trying to hustle at this casino planet you know like <laughs> it's kind of the the big gap between the, the kind of storytelling we see in these respective shows well, and like that scene you mentioned in this episode of Prodigy, it's about two characters we've spent time with and just one communicating with another on a level that anyone could understand. Whereas had you had a scene like this in Discovery, <laughs> let's just say, oh I don't know, like uh, it's Tilly down in a board cube or whatever. You'd have Burnham over the comp being like, Tilly, in life, we all have to take a leap of faith sometimes. 
And sometimes those leaps take us to profound places we could never have imagined. And it would just go on and on and on. There would probably be tears. The, the score would be swelling. And you would just sense the Discovery writers all just like patting each other on the back and celebrating as smoke comes off the pen as they're writing that monologue. <laughs> and like that is not the case here. <laughs> Well, all that hollow Janeway should have been doing is she should have been whispering, right, Cam? Like, sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Quintilla, Quintilla, I, I have to talk to you like this for some reason. It's just, it's more dramatic. And, oh, wait, I'm sobbing now. <laughs> no, it's just kind of like, okay, whisper, because that means it's important. And as Tilly is walking through the Borg, you'd have Zora serenading us with a song <laughs> about strength. <laughs> Cam, uh, Dark and Stormy was the episode uh, last season of uh, Discovery where I officially, like, whatever goodwill uh, I had going into that season, even we had, like, terrible episodes like the Cadets, the Starfleet Cadets episode, whatever goodwill existed, I was just like, oh, this show is just complete, like, so up its own butt. I just, I I, I have no faith in it anymore. I Like, that, that episode, like... Uh, listen go go back listen to our review and i like i'm going absolutely mad as we're uh talking about that episode uh, earlier this year was it late last year i forget either way um it was maddening yeah and the episode was actually called stormy weather which i'm surprised you didn't get correct considering that song has been on your uh ipod playlist ever since thank you um, <laughs> um it shows you how much how mad i am at that episode like because a dark and stormy is actually like a cocktail drink and i just all i wanted to do after watching that episode is slam dark and stormies <laughs> i thought there was one aspect of this episode that was actually kind of interesting and i don't know that a kid would ever pick up on it but their parents might which is the invincibility of youth where you have like the janeway hologram he was like, this is not a good idea. Don't go into this board cube. This is really dangerous. <laughs> and it's kids who are like, yeah, we'll be fine. Let's go. <laughs> and just like racing in. So I think like an episode like this might actually play really well for parents of, you know, kids they want to introduce to Star Trek because I think they might see a little bit of their kids in this episode. Okay. So maybe just kind of a plot point I, I we might just want to briefly touch upon until we, uh, before we jump to the next episode, though, is... We establish here why, you know, Dahl and company won't be immediately trying to return to, you know, Earth. You know, it's like there's some sort of weapon on the Protostar, you know, uh, the Diviner. Um, Cam, did I miss this, like, from, like, earlier? I, I felt dumb when they kind of casually tossed off the line, like, oh, yeah, he's from the future. Okay. And I was like, what? okay. I was going to ask you this as well. Okay. <laughs> so maybe we're both dumb. Yeah. Or maybe this is super, like, uh, just kind of a weird, like, toss-off line that uh, should have had a little bit more emphasis on it. I, 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 I don't know where we're coming from, but I mean, I'm very intrigued by this idea that the Diviner is actually from the future, and that's why he has all these strong feelings about, uh, you know, capturing the Protostar. Like, to me, again, it, it's like we established, like, the uh, antagonist motivation going forward. And I think that's a really th strong thing. Um, that, you know, a prodigy is succeeding, succeeding at more than say, you know, like, uh, you know, Picard season one antagonists, you know, like the, the Romulans, yeah, for example. Yeah. And I got just genuinely interested in seeing what the dynamic will be between him and Janeway. This episode, I thought, oh, like this could be genuinely compelling stuff because I think the diviner as a character, when we left him after he'd been basically zapped by zero, I was like, well, is there that much to do with this character? It feels like they've kind of resolved him in a way, and uh, that's okay. But 
I'm actually interested to see where they go with this because it seems like it's actually going to be character relationships and dynamics that are going to build out of this as opposed to just like him, you know, putting his forces back together and coming with the second wave of evil. Like this sounds like it could be something a little more, you know, compelling, at least for the adult viewer. I have to admit, I, I was a little bit more interested in what was going on on the uh, the Dauntless uh, throughout this episode than necessarily a board cube. And maybe it's just it's just fun seeing Admiral Janeway at work. You, you also have like a, a bit of a prickly doctor aboard. You know, you kind of get the dynamic. You've got like a uh, an earnest, you know, uh, uh, trill, you know, uh, officer. You know, like I, I. It's just fun seeing like um, you know uh, Prime Janeway at work here once again. Was that Jason Alexander as the Tellerite Doctor? Uh, if it was, I missed it. I missed it too, but I'm just looking at like the credits on it of Dr. Uh, Noom or Naum, and it's Jason Alexander, and I'm not sure, but I did do a search, and people were saying, I guess reporting out of Star Trek Day, that Dr. Naum was a Tellerite adult. So I'm like, oh, okay... Yeah. If it is him, it was a definitely a, a voice performance that I didn't recognize. He was definitely going for an actual character. Okay, well, you know what, Cam? The jerk store called and they're running out of you. <laughs> um, I liked the bit in this episode, too, where we had the weapon search. And I was like, I haven't seen a search this intense since the search for boots in Star Trek VI. <laughs> <laughs> Which, did you notice who they ended up pinning it on in uh, Star Trek VI? It was a, a crew member, enlisted member of the crew called Dax. And yeah. uh, I guess they liked the name. And uh, his feet did not fit the boot, which was uh, one of the best moments in uh, Star Trek VI, which uh, to me, it's still just one of my favorite adventures in Star Trek of all time. I am very curious how they handle this hidden weapon on the Protostar, because it's like, what do you do with this? Is is the series, and, and I'm giving this show a lot of credit because I don't think they've really steered too wrong thus far, so I'm sure they'll resolve it in satisfying ways, but like, are we just waiting for this weapon to be deactivated at a certain point? Like, where are we going with this? You know, but then is the concern that we're going to have a show that's just running in place for five seasons because you don't want these young cadets to end up back on Earth and the protostar is going to be taken away from them? Like, what is a show after they get back to the Federation proper? I do think they're going to resolve it because it, this show doesn't seem like it's just resting on its laurels, like dragging things out. So we have, like, you know, prime Janeway here. They aren't going to drag out this Janeway search, I, I can't imagine, for, like, multiple seasons. So I do wonder if by the end of this season we have some sort of resolution there and then maybe season two takes us in a completely different direction. Because I just have a hard time imagining that, like, the entire series of Prodigy is the hunt for Chakotay. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the working title of this show is Star Trek Chakotay. So, Cam, maybe think twice about that. <laughs> I mean, uh, given what we got for the tease of Chakotay in the uh, previous episode, um, I'm okay just searching for him for now. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Cam, all the world's a stage. This is uh, episode uh, 12 or uh, I guess 13, depending on how you want to count these episodes. Uh, but um, uh, what a fun episode, you know, and it reminded me a lot. You know, okay, so this is one in which uh, the protostar comes across a uh, an M-class planet that had previously been visited just once for, for some first contact. And we find that the uh, 
the Enterprisians, as they uh, like to call themselves, uh, they've been greatly influenced by that first contract they had with the 1701. And so much so that uh, somebody's doing a cringeworthy Shatner performance, <laughs> one that I'm just like, don't, can't we have just a little respect for Shatner now? Like, that's kind of what I was thinking, and that, like, he, he never quite performed that way. It And it wasn't really until, like, Star Trek V, when he was directing himself, that he really did, like, those over-enunciated sort of, like, um, syllables and vowels, you know you know what I'm saying? So it's just kind of like, I don't know. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I don't know, Kim, I, I, I tried looking through the end credits, and it, they went, they whizzed by so fast while I was watching the show. Was it legit? Like George Takei doing the voice of the uh, the imposter Sulu there? No way. Was it? I, I don't know. I, to me, I was just like, wow, uh, after talking about a horsey just a few weeks ago on uh, Lower Decks, um, wouldn't it surprise me if he uh, shows up just to do an impersonation of his own voice? I, I thought it was a pretty good impersonation, if it wasn't even him. No, yeah. I mean, I thought that like that one they nailed pretty well. I think the thing with the Shatner one, the reason it works for me in this episode is because... One of the fun concepts of this episode is sort of how, you know, a story or culture can be kind of degraded over time or distorted, where they're calling it like Spork and things like that. The Starfleet name, they're calling it like Starflight. The idea that like these people would distort what Shatner sounds like over the, you know, the time since the the encounter with the original Enterprise is actually kind of fun. And that's actually what happened in our own culture, where... I don't think people in like 19, you know, 66, 67 watching the original Star Trek were walking out doing those Shatner impressions. But I think after decades of, you know, that character being soaking into pop culture, that impression really became the norm. So I thought this was actually a really smart observation and a fun way to kind of kid Star Trek to a certain degree. Okay. Well, maybe you've sold me on that. So although I just, I, like, I know Shatner's not the most beloved actor. <laughs> How in... dare you? All of Star Trek fandom. Although the fact is, Karen, let's be honest. Like, we, we go to Star Trek Las Vegas, uh, the convention. Nobody has a bigger lineup for photos than Shatner does. That man sells the room. So there's, there's got to be some love uh, over him. But I, I just wonder if he's too easily mockable for, you know, like, here's the ultimate thing. Like, you, you could describe Shatner as a narcissist. But behind narcissism is um, insecurity. And I, whenever I listen to like in-depth interviews with Shatner, you can tell he's like a deeply insecure man, and that that's not a uh, uh, a dig at him at all. Like everybody has their own insecurities, but I can kind of see through a little bit of the shield that he puts up, and I, I just don't know if he kind of deserves uh, I don't know some of the fan backlash that he gets so often. Well, I think too with Shatner, what I really appreciate about him as an actor is he just like goes for it. You are not going to see Shatner be boring on screen. And there are so many actors who will just come in and just kind of do the basic minimum and walk off screen. And you will never remember anything they do. I'm a big fan of people like whether it's Shatner, Nick Cage, Jeff Goldblum, some of these really idiosyncratic performers who, you know, people will imitate them and turn them into caricatures. But like the movies or, you know, TV shows come to life when these people are on screen because they are really swing trying to put something out there that you're going to walk away remembering well the performance that always sticks with me when it comes to shatner is uh the search for spock you know when he finds out that david has been murdered by the klingons you know that uh, it's just a moment mm -hmm. where i'm uh, like I, I i really turned around on what i thought of shatner as an actor i realized you know like he is like a legit good actor he just got kind of typecast and, and, and like 
kind of pegged as a certain type, and that that was just kind of unfortunate. I really do respect him as an actor, though, and I, I I know that maybe my opinions aren't shared by maybe the mainstream or even like Star Trek fandom at large, but I would just say like give the guy kind of a break, uh, go into it with an open mind. And Kim, it, it was so funny because you remember me like uh, this is like maybe five or six years ago. I finally went ahead and I just watched every single episode of the original series front to back. I had seen episodes here and there and I came away. I went in thinking that I was always a, a Spock guy. Yeah. I came out and I was like, I am 100% a Kirk guy. And so much of it had to do with just the, the, the gravitas of Shatner. And even like an episode like Turnabout Intruder, which is a terrible episode. But Cam, as you say, Shatner is giving it his all, despite <laughs> he's taking chances. He's taking, he's taking chances. big chances, you know. And so I, I, I do generally respect him as a performer, though. And so maybe that's why I'm, uh, I'm feeling just a little uh, uh, defensive about um, how he's depicted sure. here. But I think you made like a very good argument about how kind of memories and depictions can be degraded over time, and um, it, it, it makes sense within this context. I, I, I totally agree with you there. And very few actors will also imitate a horse on screen as well, which Shatner did on the original Star Trek. Like, he'll go for it. I guess there is that, like, sense, though, of these, like, grand performances that stretch over time that get minimized down to something very basic. Patrick Stewart, I think people hold in a higher regard sort of respect-wise than Shatner. But at the same time, in some ways, he's been reduced to, you know, the hand-in-the-forehead meme or the uh, engage, uh, make it so, number one, all that kind of stuff without maybe people, you know, in terms of like the general culture acknowledging why he's so important. What, what do you think that Jonathan Frakes thinks that he's best known for how he sits down on chairs? <laughs> like, when it yeah. comes to acting, it's about his chair sitting and it's kind of like, okay. Well, that's my legacy. I get it. I get it. Yeah, or you could say like um, with Kate Mulgrew, you look at some of the powerhouse work she does on that show and people are like, there's coffee in that nebula. <laughs> so, but, you know, like just I think overall actors, they are, you know, those kids, you know, that were in theater class back in high school and they are, you know, not not that they're needy, but they're the ones that's wanted to perform. And, and, and there's oftentimes kind of a... Uh, like kind of an insecurity in there, you know. Just I, I, I don't want to pick on Sally Field, but you remember the Oscar win, and she's like, "You like me, you really like me," and and that's often kind of driving a lot of kind of it's validation that actors get in terms of appreciation for their performances, you know. And so, anyways, Cam, this episode of uh, <laughs> Star Trek Prodigy, where we support our actors, <laughs> we do, we do. Um, I look, I, I just thought it was fun. It was just, and this is kind of like. I love how Prodigy can just have so much fun working within the universe that's been established here in Star Trek. And, and that's what, like, I we got glim glimpses of that, you know, when we're watching, like, first two episodes of uh, Star Trek Picard Season 2. Why doesn't Star Trek Picard want to do that nonstop? And I don't mean, like, fan service, but I mean, like, working within the confines of this spectacular universe... And just having fun with it, you know. I think Strange New Worlds did some really interesting things. Cam, that episode—I'm—I'm I'm blanking on the uh, title of it. Remember, there was that first contact that that alien species, and, and all they did was like try to imitate the like kind of emotional proclivities within other species, whether it's just like arguing with the Tellarites, being highly yeah. logical with the uh, Vulcans, or being kind of um, empathic and, and uh, accommodating when it came to humans. And, and it was, you know, like it's like Star Trek 
Strange New Worlds is having a lot of fun with in this universe, and I, I'm so glad that Prodigy is doing just the same. Yeah, I mean, I thought that this was an incredibly fun way as well to introduce kids to kind of the basics of Star Trek. Um, and the way that it was having fun with not just like the characters we know, like, you know, Spock and Kirk and what have you, um, the way like everything was just slightly askew, like the badges were tilted a little bit to the side. I also thought it was really genius how this episode kind of sent up the convention scene as well. Where it was like, as Star Trek fans, you know, they go to conventions and uniforms and all that sort of thing. We, I've done it myself. I don't... Have you ever done the uniform thing? I don't think so. Have you? Uh, no, but do you remember, like, a couple years ago, uh, a friend of ours, uh, Rianne Fox, uh, she bought a uniform that did not fit her. And so I tried it on. It was a, a NX-01 uniform. And it actually fit me, um, surprisingly. And so I bought her, like, a margarita. But I... <laughs> I haven't worn it since. I was just like, you know what? I have a free $100 uniform in my closet if I ever need it. But I'm more of a t-shirt guy when it comes to the Star Trek conventions. Sure. But I thought it was like really smart of this episode to have the line where they say like, you don't need a ship to, you know, represent Starfleet or whatever, however they phrased it. But the idea of like all these Star Trek fans who would be wearing the uniforms and recreating moments from their favorite shows or movies and that they can represent the ideals of what Star Trek is without actually being spacefaring adventurers it reminded me very much of that uh 25 minute extended sequence in trekkies 2 where we got to see the fan <laughs> film of the uh the western town uh you know meets uh, star trek yeah i knew you were gonna bring that up uh i i did wonder though watching this episode um wasn't there going to be at least it was in development with ds9 for the anniversary an episode where they went back to the gangster planet and had found that um the planet had basically become contaminated with Starfleet uh, imagery and whatever, and that they were going to worship um, basically the Starfleet concept, and it would be basically a send-up of fans and conventions. Then they were worried it would be a little mean-spirited, perhaps, so they went with the whole triple story. I was like, this is how you do it. Like, I thought this show did a really good job having fun with that type of concept without making it, let's make fun of the fans. Yeah, and initially I was thinking of the episode, I'm blanking on the episode title, I'm usually pretty good, but the Voyager one in which uh, we encounter kind of the, the Tuvok imposter, the Janeway imposter, I think there was an, a third imposter as well, and there's that Voyager episode, and then when we kind of got into the ep the episode uh, here, that uh, as it moved along, I was like, oh no, this is reminding me of that original concept for the uh, Trials and Tribulations uh, you know, 30th anniversary show. And I remember watching the episode The Communicator from Enterprise, and I think I read the log line as to what the gist of the episode was about, you know, how they're leaving behind Starfleet materials contaminated a planet, and I was kind of hoping for an episode like this, and that's not what that episode really was. And so I was just really thankful we got to see this concept realized, and I thought they did it in a way that, again, like, I think this show, one of its biggest strengths is it can play to the family we keep calling it like a kid's show and i think you know obviously like whatever 10 or 12 year olds will really enjoy it but i really think an episode like this would play very well to just the whole family well okay so i remember when uh we were uh doing our reviews of season one of picard and i was posting on our facebook page like kind of the link to either one of our old videos or the podcast and it is talking about the Icheb, you know mutilation scene in stardust city rag yeah and then I think my comment on the on our Facebook page was just like, uh, I don't know, is this really family viewing? 
there's some dork who he responded back. He was just like, uh, I was not allowed to watch Star Trek as a child. It was considered to be an adult show. And I was like, really? Like, Star Trek is like 18A? Is that really what it was always meant to be? Like, I don't think so, you know? And so I think Star Trek as a family show, I, I think, is where it's working best. Versus where we're seeing, like, Klingon boobies or, you know, characters dropping the F-bombs. You know, it's kind of like, okay, like, what do I do with this series in, in which a show like Discovery, is? it's like, uh, we're all about, like, um, emotions and crying, but we're also going to drop F-bombs in, so maybe parents have to think twice about letting their kids watch the show. Yeah, I really am fascinated about what any family would get from Star Trek Discovery. <laughs> um, but but like I can totally see families sitting and enjoying this show because I think it has honestly what the really great Star Trek of the past has, where it's very character driven. It has fun concepts. The way they just established the threat in this episode and then resolved it, you know, it was very clean, very easy to comprehend. It made sense. It involved character stuff. You know, we got to see Jankum deal with a problem because he's an engineer and could figure out how to solve this we got an exciting save with the protostar coming in and beaming them out so like it's the kind of tropes we see in star trek all the time but played in a way that i think is really crowd pleasing whereas i feel like sometimes the newer star trek shows overthink it and make it like less fun and exciting well i also like it has not been such an issue in seasons three and four of discovery remember, just remember how convoluted like season two was and just overcomplicating things. We had such a tough time, like following what this show is. I don't have a tough time following what the storyline is. Any given episode of Prodigy, although I guess you and I were both a little. Uh, we both paused when we were talking about the Diviner being from the future. And again, we're getting old. It's been a while since we watched, you know, the first half of the season, which I think aired in uh, 20, uh, 2011, I believe. And so maybe we had yeah. just like forgotten. <laughs> so um, yeah, but like uh, this is like a strong one. It it, it it also just kind of like talks about like why there would be an appreciation for kind of the values of Starfleet, you know, without just somebody shouting at the screen, we are Starfleet, we believe in values, you know, it's, it's something to aspire to and you can understand why, even if uh, the uniforms are stitched together and the, you know, uh, insignia is a little bit uh, off the 90 degree axis. Um, it's just, it, it's, it makes you realize just how delightful this universe is and that moment where they beam them up onto the bridge yeah holy moly gave me a little bit of the vibes of that episode not the movie but first contact or also um who watches the watchers where it's that like kind of inspirational taking outsiders into the world of star trek and kind of letting them experience the wonder now this show being like 22 minutes obviously has to move at a quicker pace so you don't kind of get the grandeur of those moments the way you did on like tng for example um same with like the resolution to solving the problem it's it's much quicker here than it would be in a typical hour-long star trek episode but i think it manages to kind of capture the spirit of those stories that people really appreciate but Kim, I mean, just even turning the consoles into what things looked like in the 1701 era, I mean, that that was just like, that is, it might seem like cheap, but it works on me, you know, and it, it does seem earned because you spent so much time with these Enterpriseians and understanding how much they relate and they care for that era as well, just like the fans do. Well, we've had two episodes now of Prodigy that I would say are pretty fan servicey. 
Um, I guess you could make an argument for the Borg episode as well, but I'm thinking more so the one where they had the classic characters um, in the simulator on the holodeck, uh, and then this episode where we have you know Star Trek land, basically. And I think in both cases, they found very clever ways to do it that didn't just you know, result in basically quick cameos and really on-the-nose fan service. It felt like they actually had fun concepts for episodes they could build around an interesting way to, you know, reintroduce these ideas. Yeah. Um. Okay. Uh, Cam, why don't we jump over to the uh, Cam Dort report, as I'm now just calling it. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it's rhyming now. <laughs> uh. Well, I mean, we did start with the Mandalorian report. Or, no, it, it started as the Mandalorian report. Uh, before it turned into the Candelorton report. It took you a couple of weeks to get going with that. But um, Cam, is Andor the best show on TV right now? Like, I don't know. It's up for debate, but um, I, I, okay. You get to the moment, spoilers, blah, blah, blah. You get to the moment where Andy Serkis, he comes to this realization, everyone's just going to die anyways. Why don't we fight for our lives? You know, I, I, I'd rather die fighting rather than die giving them what they want and you build this all up and he gets to the edge and he looks looks around he's like i can't swim and it's like oh it 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 like kind of hits you in the guts and i'll just say that moment where they pull back from the prison and you can see people swimming in all these different directions and just how the music swells there it's that was such a legit emotionally earned moment it was organic it just made me kind of like uh it just made my heart swell and just the show is very effective at, at doing this sort of stuff because it's building it up over like episodes you get invested in what the stakes are you understand what the stakes are and i don't know the, the, this show is just working for me on a level that uh, not necessarily getting from uh you know season two of star trek picard in which uh Guinan burps uh really loudly to conjure up <laughs> like uh some other uh alien species yeah it's like okay so with andor you say is it the best show on television i would say it depends week to week but this week yeah <laughs> like yeah. andor was absolutely incredible this week i thought one way out this jailbreak episode was riveting beginning to end i really even didn't take many notes because it was like i am just so sucked into this there was not the divorce of like bouncing back and forth between notes or being like huh that's a weird thing let me write that down this entire story was so propulsive like the one we did um fairly recently the eye um i guess it was like three or four episodes ago uh, which was also just riveting like kind of action-based storytelling and this one you know you mentioned Andy Serkis I hope he gets like recognition maybe by the Emmys or something like that for guest spot on this show because one of the genius parts of Andy Serkis is that like he's a pretty intimidating looking guy when he plays himself as quite gruff and so like it makes it really powerful when he suddenly like exposes that vulnerability and like the way you see him you know finally gain kind of the strength to take part in this rebellion and then give the big speech and i mean what a hell of a you know star wars inspirational speech but that can't swim moment was like heartbreaking (laughs) and because he said it so quietly he underplayed it it wasn't like a i can't swim (laughs) or something it was a very quiet like acknowledgement of like i i don't know what to do and the fact that we didn't get any resolution to that 
I mean, in some shows that would drive me crazy. In this one, I was like, oh my god, this is gonna like just stick with me for the rest of the week uh, until I get the uh, next episode of Andor. Well, not only was the prison break like incredibly tense, um, I liked how they didn't spell everything out for you. You were just kind of following it as it unfolded. It, it built up moment after moment. The sequence in which they're in the command center and they they had to kind of shoot the guy to explain to the other workers like, oh no, you better start turning things off as we say. You know, those are great. But yeah. beyond all that, we have that Luthen scene, uh, the Stellan Skarsgård character with oh. who we now find out is Lonnie the spy. And I'm just yeah. like, like, oh my god, like even the elevator sequence with Lonnie going up and up in this like, um, just these Dutch angles and how it seems as if this elevator could crash at any moment. You know, you have Luthen explaining like, oh yeah, I see you have a daughter now. And, you know, Lonnie's trying to explain like, look, if uh, you, you don't act swiftly, you're gonna, like 50 people are gonna die. Well, Luthen's like, well, you're gonna have to then blow your cover. Like, uh, they'll know that there is some sort of mole, and I guess these fifty people are gonna be worth your value. What do you think about that? I mean, this is the sort of stuff. This seems real. Like, this is just like super, like uh, legit, like spycraft here. And I'm just like, yeah, this is how you write like a real show, like an adult show set in which is like the, the, this very fantastical universe that started off, um, you know, with, with kind of like uh, space wizards and and what have you. <laughs> Well, it's like so much of this episode is about sacrifices, and you hear Stellan Skarsgård and uh, Lonnie underline what they've given up, you know, for this burgeoning rebellion. But also, you have that scene with Mon Mothma talking to this shady financier who wants basically <laughs> his son to be introduced to Mon Mothma's daughter, and you get that just killer moment where she says, like, you know, I'm not even going to consider this, and he basically says, well, now you're lying. And it's like, oh, yeah. yeah, like just the the cost of what the rebellion is going to uh, require from these people. It's the sort of thing in Star Wars. It's always kind of there under the surface, you know, that the rebellion have really fought hard for a long time. But this show has really just like, like just really focused in, like really honed in on these little character moments that are really showing us what all of the kind of the predecessors to, you know, your Leia's and your Luke's had to go through to get to that point. Well, speaking of, like, little character moments, just even Miro's reaction to Lonnie kind of showing her up in terms of being decisive and insightful about how they should react to uh, this uh, potential rebel attack. And Miro's, you you can tell it's jealousy, like, almost like a certain amount of horror oozing out of her that there might be somebody who could actually rival her in terms of ingenuity and like that was it was such a quick moment and it's not like they needed a follow-up with her having some sort of soliloquy in front of the mirror explaining what her emotions were right there it's just it just seems like kind of like a like a mature like adult show that they're giving us week in week out and i i like i i don't know how i would have felt about this show if I if I had to binge watch it versus just be be able to absorb it week to week though. But I, I think it's a very different experience and I'm I'm grateful that we get to kind of watch it week to week and take it all in as it goes. Yeah, I I've enjoyed much more so. I think it was the eye that really turned it for me. I was definitely confused on the week to week experience early on. But I, I do think these prison based episodes have stood better on their own than some of the previous arcs. Where, like, the middle chapter of the first three was, like, that really didn't support itself yeah. as a single hour. And I, I didn't think the same with the um, second episode leading into the eye. It was, like, 
okay, where are we going here? Whereas I do feel like these prison ones have had a really compelling element in each one that has carried me through. So maybe my last question for you is uh, that, that final moment. We see Andor running on the sand with just one other guy. Are they the only ones that made it to shore after that uh, that prison escape camp? It's possible, yeah. Yeah. Um... Yeah, that's kind of how I interpreted it. But just how kind of capricious the show can be where you have these other prisoners that we're invested in even just that guy who's like amazing at trying like trying to climb up the uh that lift there he just gets shot very capriciously it's not like the camera lingers yeah. and the music swells it's like yeah this fella that you're invested in he's dead now um this other guy he like he's electrocuted on the floor you know it's just kind of like it's I gotta commend the show just on its its brutality to a certain degree. And I really like how I don't know if I realized it before this latest episode, but the character of Andor, um, he's an odd lead in some ways for a Star Wars show because a lot of Star Wars content, TV show or movies, it's really like kind of these larger than life heroes who very much take the lead. And one of the interesting things with Andor is, and I, I began to think about Rogue One as well, is that he's not really a leader. He's someone who very much empowers others and can motivate others. And you saw that with the Andy Serkis character here. And you see that with the Jin Erso character in Rogue One as well. He's like the world's best support guy. And I think the show has done an interesting job in making him the lead without giving him the big speeches. Well, making him uh, like tell Andy Serkis's character to to speak up, you know, is that all you got? Like when he's speaking over the PA system, you know, I'm just like, yes, you know, like like it, it it's not like Diego Luna. He's got an executive producer credit on the show. You can tell like, he's not going to the writers and demanding like I need more lines. You know, I need to do more. Like I need to be, you know, like uh, a number one every single scene. And I think that just takes like means that he cares about this character that he's portraying quite a bit, especially if he has that much influence over what's going on in the show. I even wonder if he's almost doing the Tom Hardy thing of demanding less lines and wanting to communicate more through action in his eyes, because it is working, I think, for, for a lead of a show. Yeah. All right, Cam. Um, I just I, I I can't wait till we go back and uh, listen to our initial thoughts on Andor. You know, going back a couple weeks <laughs> and just how far we've come. And like we were very iffy on the show at the outset. We were often very confused, but I we're along for this ride. I mentioned it last week, but I I can't wait until I do kind of a a rewatch. And it might be sooner rather than like just waiting for season two to begin because I don't think we're gonna get season two until at least twenty twenty four. So. I don't know. I, I'm pumped for the show. Only two more episodes left until we get to the finale. And um, I, I just, I, I, week to week, I, I can't wait to see, um, you know, I, like you said, ever since the eye, I've been with the show. I, I, uh, I've been more attuned to its rhythms. I'm with it all the way. And I've noticed as well, if you look at IMDb episode scores, like it has gone up a lot in the second half of this season, where it really seems like a lot of people have really locked into it around that episode the eye as well um no like andor is a show i think for me is all the more exciting because we know the end is coming because it's going to be a two season show and i think that that is actually building up my excitement for it because it doesn't feel like this thing that could just drag on forever so it's like i know that if it is two seasons they have a really strong sense as to where they want it to go and so yeah i'm along for the ride um i did have a a question for you. 
Now, we saw in this uh, last handful of episodes this prison that's constantly building parts. And I was trying to figure out the timeline. Do you think these are Death Star parts? Well, that's what the speculation is right now online. And it's not any conclusion that I drew myself. It's just as soon as folks on social media started like saying that, I was just like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So I, I can buy that. It's Death Star parts. And I can also buy the fact that they just never address what this is. It's just left up to us to kind of guess. It could easily be just Imperial Fleet stuff. But uh, yeah, that did pop into my head watching this episode. I also want to credit Andor, the character, had maybe the most one of the most awesome moments in this episode, which is when he's standing on the red or standing on the, the floor and steps off right the second it turns red. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, badass. Very like just subtle but very cool. I'm picturing you with a red flashlight tonight uh, before you go to bed and like uh, uh, turning it uh, on right before you jump, uh, leap back into your uh, bed. Right, Cam? That's right. Get out of my head. Okay. So. Okay. Um, okay. So next week we will be back. We're going to do one of our classic Star Trek episode reviews. We're going to have a lot of fun with this one. It's been a while since I've watched uh, Bada Bing, Bada Bang. Uh, this is kind of our journey of uh, Vic Fontaine here. Uh I, I, I can't wait to rewatch this again. It my memories are it's just it's such a classic ensemble episode, and that's really why we wanted to tackle this. Like, what is one of those like really solid ensemble episodes of Deep Space Nine? And I think this one it also just has a lot to say about our characters, even if it's maybe not the deepest one. But um look, I I, I can't wait until we tackle this next week, Cam. Yes, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. It's been a while, yeah, as you said, since we've done like a classic uh, episode review. So I'm ready to dive into this one because my memories are it's a very fun episode. Okay, you can, of course, also leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts or also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash subspace pod. And also you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in violins through inspirational moments. No thanks, Smith. And you can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-O-R-T-T as in T over coffee for Janeway, O-N. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.